Have you ever noticed that God's way of doing things is so very often the exact opposite of the way that the world does them? That's certainly true of the subject we're looking at today and for the next couple of weeks for that matter. It's something that we're all interested in. It's something that's being fought over in the Middle East and has been for years. Millions of dollars have been spent in America in recent months to secure it. And we're surrounded by people in their own workplaces and city who are hungry for it. What is it? Power. That's what people want. But it's like in so many other areas. The way that God thinks and God operates and God exercises his divine power, which is unmatched and unstoppable, is totally unlike anything the world would recognize as power. And we're going to be learning a lesson about power in the Christian faith from a church that I strongly suspect never actually learned it. They hadn't learned it so far in all the correspondence to them. And I also suspect this is one of the hardest lessons for Christians today to learn because in so many ways, our culture around us mirrors that of the culture of Corinth. Affluent, preoccupied by entertainment, distracted by glitz and glamour, more interested in style over substance, more persuaded by emotion and deep feelings than by logic and reason. That's just the air we breathe and and the ways that our families and neighbours and colleagues operate. And so is it any wonder in a world like that that Christians then and Christians now have been taken in and impressed by what the world would say is truly powerful even when it comes to spiritual matters? Would you recognise God's divine power if he were to act with all of it in front of you? What wonders would God's power appear to be demonstrated in And in particular, what would a ministry look like that was truly displaying the power of God? Could you recognize it if you were part of it or if you saw it from afar? And if you think that you could, is it the answer that God gives? Because here's the sure sign of God's power work. See for yourself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? That God's power is made perfect in weakness? We're continuing on in 2 Corinthians and we're looking today at and next week at a section that's been called by lots of writers and scholars, the full speech. The full speech runs from chapter 11, verse 16, through to chapter 12, verse 10. And it ends with a statement that should bring us great comfort and joy if we if we can start seeing it from God's perspective. That is, in chapter 12, verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. And and the full speech, the whole thing, is one of the most deeply ironic passages of the whole Bible. It's a speech that's made in response to a false understanding of God's power that's being peddled by people we've already heard the Apostle Paul call uh, false brothers, false apostles, deceitful workmen, people who masquerade as servants of light and people who peddle the word of God for profit. They're the descriptions he's been using all along through this letter of 2 Corinthians. And we saw a lot of that last week, just in chapter 11 at the start. 
It's a group that's infiltrated the church in Corinth and they seem to be gaining sway. People are being persuaded and they're coming on board and they're talking down the Apostle Paul and talking up themselves. And they're the sort of people who come with all sorts of long lists of impressive letters after their name, OAM, OBE, PhD, DVD, no, that the one, QC. And when they show up to talk, they talk about being impressive they speak with the sultry tones of uh, love songs, dedications, DJ. They're, and they've got the style and sophistication to match. They're, they're eloquent. They're well argued. Uh, they just are impressive in every way. They're good looking. But in the full speech, we're told two more things about them that just makes them seem even more impressive. One, we're told about their fine pedigree that they come with in the part that we're looking at today. And two, they also come with works of spectacular power, with a supernatural air about them of the things that they can do, the things that they've seen and the things that they're able to perform. They talk up their visions from God and how in touch they are with the divine and they can do miracles and wonders. And so on the face of it, they exercise what seems to be real spiritual power. And they hope to capitalize on the dissatisfaction of some amongst the Corinthian church of Paul's ministry. Uh, dissatisfaction because, well, partly because his message is so black and white and hard to hear. They hated his determined focused on the cross. They didn't like his demand for radical change in Christian living. And they certainly didn't like the proper discipline he was telling them to exercise when it didn't occur and that they had to you know, excommunicate this guy and they had to come down hard on this person and they didn't like any of that. And there's been lots of pain over those issues and Paul recognises that, there's been grieving. But, but they're also dissatisfied for something else. They're dissatisfied because when he's here in person, he's just pretty ordinary. Uh, he's unimpressive, he's not eloquent, he lacks pizzazz. He's just this country hick, strange guy who can't speak real good because he didn't learn proper at school. Not surprising then that the insurgents found entry into the church of Corinth so easy, particularly with these impressive preachers who've got their great CV and their strong pedigree. They spoke of Jesus. Oh, we love Jesus, don't we? So they're speaking about Jesus, but it's a Jesus different to the gospel Jesus, the ones that Paul and the apostles spoke about, the ones that the the uh, gospels themselves speak about. And, and they talked about the gospel all the time. They used gospel in every sentence, but it was a different gospel, Paul says. And they appealed to the spirit, the spirit of God's at work in us. Can't you see it? As they shared their spiritual experiences, but it was a different spirit to a spirit of the Lord Jesus. And we saw all of that last week in the start of chapter 11. It's the language of Christianity, it's the words of Christianity, it sounds like Christianity, but it's twisted. I mean, that's what makes it so hard to spot. And so to refute them, what Paul does is present himself as a fool, because he says they're happy to listen to fools in Corinth. Isn't that how our passage starts? Have a look at uh, verses 16 to 21 in chapter 11. He says, I repeat, let no one consider me a fool, but if you do... At least accept me as a fool so that I can also boast a little. What I'm saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were foolishly, let me talk like an idiot for a moment, since many boast according to the flesh in their kind of worldly presence and achievements, 
I will also boast. For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. You get what he's saying? You're prepared to listen to a bunch of idiots who are all puffed up and who brag about how good they are. Well, if that's the only sort of person that you're ever going to listen to, I might as well join in, right? Let's have a pissing contest then. Let's see who wins. You see, only a fool who doesn't understand the power of God at work would boast of their human achievements and qualifications. Only a fool would do that. And only fools with no grasp of God's wisdom would would boast about their own human wisdom. But since you seem to be so impressed by it, let's have at it. You want a pissing contest? Well, you're on. And so from verse 21, he starts matching them boast for boast. Have a look. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly, of course, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Now, if you know anything about Paul and his background, you'd know his religious pedigree was was second to none. He was from the right race. He was from the right tribe within that race. He was from the right family. He was from the right religious sect and from had the right religious sort of education. He had a flawless track record in terms of qualifications. They want to talk about their upbringing and their connections and their history. Well, Paul's got it all over them. But notice I skipped very naughtily over verse that bit in verse 23. I'm speaking like a madman. And, and it's almost as if he can't go on speaking about his personal qualifications in the way that he has been because while he's got it all over them in all the same areas, he knows that they prove absolutely nothing. It's empty. He's saying it's insane. You've got to be a madman to think that those things do prove anything. But from the world's point of view, they seem like they should mean something, don't they? You imagine a well-dressed man comes in in obviously a suit that's not bought at Lowe's, that's been tailored, you know, maybe even a bespoke suit with the right shirt, and he comes into church and, and, uh, and, and he announces that he should be allowed to speak at the service. He says, well, I'm from Kirribilli. Uh, my name is Howard, Frank Howard. Uh, I'm related to the former Prime Minister. I've got a PhD from Oxford. Um, uh, how does any of that give him a right to be heard above anyone else who's gathered as God's people for church? It sounds impressive, though, doesn't it? And if someone walked in and did say that, we'd, we'd think, go, oh, sure, let's, yeah, let's hear what you've got to say. But it's dumb. Why is it dumb? Because none of those things tell you if he's a friend of God's uh, or not. It doesn't tell you if he's been saved by the Lord Jesus or not. It it doesn't tell you if he's got any helpful wisdom to impart to God's people. It doesn't tell you anything about whether he truly is wise or a fraud. It tells you none of those things. Now, how does Paul know that? That none of those background pieces of information and pedigree and training and being connected with the right race and so on are just foolishness and that you'd have to be mad to be sucked in by them. How does he know? 
because he had all those pedigree and all those qualifications himself. And he had them well before he was a Christian. And they, what did they mean in terms of his salvation and whether anyone should listen to him? They meant diddly squat. In fact, he'd used all that background and position himself and he'd used it for such horrendous evil to persecute Christians. You read through the book of Acts and what he was doing is horrible and it's so evil he recognises in himself that he calls himself the prince of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1 because of what he was doing. And so only a madman would think that those things meant anything and only a fool would be convinced by them. And because he knows it's all worthless and because he knows he could beat them all if they went down that track, that he could he could match them, he could do even better qualification for qualification, he stops there and he and he changes tack completely, he goes in a different direction. And it's like it's a it's a judo match and he sweeps the legs right out from under them when he's you know, they get, seem to be going this direction, and they're off balance and then bang. And so from here on, instead of boasting about things that the world boasts about, he starts bragging about stuff that, well, doesn't make him seem too flash, right? Stuff you would never really boast about. It's all about his suffering and his weakness. It's weird. And his, it's what's the full speech. You know, want to talk about how oppressive a servant of Jesus I am? I speak as a madman. I, I'm way better at it than these guys because look at... Look at me, look what I'm doing. With far more labours, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. We want to talk about how great a servant of Jesus someone is. Well, look at me. Look what's happened. Hang on, you. What, I thought you were telling us how impressive you were. Weren't you just about to list off all the numbers of converts and the, the thousands of people who flock to Christ and the, the books that you've published. Shouldn't that be what he says next? Well, here's these qualifications. Verse 24, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. If you're not good at maths, that's 39. Uh, and he did that. Uh, he did that five times, 539s. I'm not quite sure what that is. So I'd have to use a calculator. Qualification. You know, there's my achievement. I got whipped a lot. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? What's it a list of? It's a list of his sufferings, his setbacks, even even his failures. The other guys boasted in their triumphs, how, how they've gone from victory to victory, how many people listen to them. Uh, there's never a hint of failure. Every crusade they've been on has been a success. Uh, Reinhard Bonnke with his book, 
hell empty, heaven full on the back cover. 42 million people have responded to the gospel call of my events. Right? And since his website now says 75 million people, that would make him not only the greatest evangelist of the modern era, which this book claims, it would make him the greatest evangelism in the history of the world. All right? About how every person at every crusade he ran in Africa came forward and gave their lives to Christ. That's what it's about. Is that what the Apostle Paul experienced? No, he was hated. He was handed out of towns. Some places barely a soul gave their life to Christ, arrested, opposed, beaten, starving, shivering. And look at the latest crusade he's just been on to Damascus. What happened there? Let's have a see. How's this for a ripping success? Verse 32. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aratus guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. (laughs) I ran away. (laughs) Now, why does he go on like that? How can he boast about things like those? Isn't he just playing right into the hands of the infiltrators? No, he's sweeping their leg because all the way through he keeps explaining what he's doing. Verse 30, if boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. He says it again in next week's passage in 12.5, I'll not boast about myself except of my weaknesses. Even more bizarre in verse 10 of chapter 12, he doesn't just boast in his weaknesses, he says he takes delight in them. He says, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not because he's a masochist. It's not because he likes getting beaten up. It's not because he likes people punching him. He's like, yeah, come on. You know, it makes me feel alive when I feel the pain and I have bruises the next day. No, it's nothing that. It's because he's, when he's weak, then he's strong and he knows he's doing it for the sake of Christ. And so here's the lesson for this morning. Here's the take-home point. Here is the thing to to remember and mull over and savour. You ready? When God works in all of his divine power, he deliberately acts to keep those through whom he has worked weak. Let me say it again because I don't think the Corinthians ever learned it and because it's just so countercultural. When God works in all of his divine power, God deliberately acts in order to keep those through whom he works and even those through whom he does, in whom he does the work and amongst them. He deliberately does it to keep them conscious of their abject weakness. And it's wonderful that he does. It's magnificent that he does. And you can't escape that. We'll see it again next week when we look at him more detail, but here's a preview, chapter 12 and verse 9. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I'll all the more gladly boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. When God works in all of his divine power, he deliberately acts in such a way as to keep those through whom and amongst whom he works weak. Isn't that interesting? It's just so different to the world. It's, it's the opposite. It's countercultural. You think about the world around us. Why have millions and millions of dollars been spent in the US in the last few months on advertising the two candidates and now millions more are going to be spent in lawsuits and in recounting for power? The means were spent on advertising to project power. What, what, that's why it's been spent. Why does the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, always turn up on shows in his camo pants but bare-chested with a a fish speared or hunting some beast uh, with these rippling muscles even in his aging body. It's to project power. Why do the profile pictures of the footy players in the origin have them standing there looking all tough, you know, with that evil stink eye, (laughs) to project power? It's why the weekend papers have all those supplements in the middle about health and wealth and status and strength and getting ahead in the property market. We love power. And we think that God must work in power through human power. And so did the Corinthians. But it's the exact opposite. And it's not just a throwaway comment here and you go, oh, well, that's a weird passage. I can just ignore that. It's a key principle right throughout the Bible and particularly in both letters to the Corinthians, let me show you, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, first chapter of the two letters, right? 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. For the Jews ask for science and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Or 2 Corinthians 1, this letter, verses 8 and 9. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see the logic? This happened, all this trouble and weakness, so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves, but rely on God who is powerful, the one who is such power that he can raise the dead, and he has done that in the Lord Jesus. Or chapter 4 and verse 7. Now we have this treasure, the gospel, in jar, in clay jars, that, you know, weak and feeble, cracked vessels, you know, the chip pot, you know, that you made in art class that, you know, you only keep around because you made it. But, but so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. 
In other words, God deliberately clothes his divine acts of power in abject human weakness so that we don't say and can't say, well, boy, am I powerful and God uses the powerful. Or, man, I am so smart. Uh, God couldn't have figured it out without me. God uses the clever or boy, I am so strong and God must use the strong. What would happen if that was the way that God got things done, if that's the way that God operated? What would happen? Who would all the praise go to in the end when great things occurred and people got saved? The praise would go to us. We'd end up boasting in our power and our wisdom and our strength, not in God's. And people say, wow, what a great, what a fine, how great is that person? Wow. What do you mean? 75 million people came to Christ. Wow. He must be amazing. It's the key idea through the whole Bible. (laughs) Just pause and think for a moment. What about Moses? Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Oh, God, don't send me. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow in speech and tongue. Please, please just send somebody else. But God sent him anyway. God brought about the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament by creating a leader from a bloke who couldn't talk proper, who didn't want the job, and begged, please send somebody else. Same with Gideon in Judges 6. Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. I'm a weakling. Please send somebody else. Or David and Goliath, a tiny, wimpy kid who's so small that he couldn't even wear armour in the battle against a nine-foot giant who no one dared to oppose. Or the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians and verse 4. Was he crucified in power? Was he crucified in wisdom? No, he was crucified in weakness. God deliberately handed over his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be crucified in total, abject, unmasked, Human weakness. And yet where do you see the perfect love of God displayed at the cross? Where do you see the perfect wisdom of God displayed at the cross? Where do you see the perfect faithfulness of God perfectly displayed at the cross? Where do you see the perfect judgment of a holy God displayed at the cross? Where do you see the perfect wisdom of God at the cross? Where do you see the perfect, absolute power of God displayed as the Lord Jesus Christ is pinned in disgrace to a tree? As British preacher William Taylor once said, at every moment of history, God deliberately closed the moments of his greatest work in power, in the garments of weakness, and he does so to confound the arrogance of human flesh, 
so that the power and wisdom and the strength might be seen to be his and his alone. Now, what do we make of all that? What do we do with that? If God's power is manifest in weakness, what do we do with it? Let me draw out some implications. I've got five of them. First one, the most obvious one, is don't be sucked in. Right? That's what Paul's been saying all along. Don't be sucked in. Don't be sucked in by what is peddled as the power of God, but which is a complete and utter sham, just a facade. If you learn this lesson well, you'll be able to smell the stench of sulfur from a mile off. And yet Christians are always being drawn away to a false Jesus, to a different gospel and a false spirit every day by people just like these super apostles. Does a book called Your Best Life Now sound anything like what God says true power looks like? Right, But that's Joel Osteen's big hit. And there's now your best life now for teens and your best life now for women and your best life now for, I don't know, pregnant bunnies. Oh, I don't know, but, you know, because he keeps making money off it. Bethel Church, the new hot mega church that in California, whose music has influenced and infiltrated into every church on the planet, you know, it brags about the fact that during its worship times in the services, a glory cloud comes down from the heavens, right? Miracle of this golden dust that swirls around the theatre that only God could bring, right? Despite the fact that study after study has shown that it's made of man-made synthetic fibres and mica dust just mixed in together, right? It's fool's gold, right? But they say it's a supernatural phenomenon. What appears to be gold dust falling from the sky during worship, I'm quoting, and, and jewels have said to be miraculously growing up from the floor that people can scoop up and take home in their pockets as a gift from God, <laughs> a miracle. Is it an act of God? Lots of people think so. Hell empty, heaven full. It's all a nonsense. And from someone who is part of what is called the new apostolic movement. Sounds a lot like Super apostle, doesn't it? Right? There's nothing new under the sun. Even better than the apostles. Just look at the numbers. It's all a nonsense. Authentic ministry that is blessed by God, that he uses, is not about power, whether performance ability kind of power, or lists of appearances, or, or apparent success. Or, or miracles, or glory clouds coming down, but it is about weakness. It's about dedication. It's about service and sacrifice. It's vessels of clay going with the simple gospel truth in weakness. Don't be sucked in. Second implication. I, I think we've got to exercise ourselves real caution as we talk about any Christian ministry that we're involved in, whether it's at church or a youth group that we might be a leader of or whatever it might have. It's easy to talk up the success, but, but be very careful of pride. Now, honestly, it's good to celebrate wins and good to celebrate what God's done. It's, it's good to thank God and it's good to encourage one another. 
But let's never ever give the impression that the great ships and Barnabas marches from one triumph to another. Yes, we've grown. Yes, people have become Christians. Lives have been changed. It's phenomenal. It's magnificent. This is not the church that it was 10, 10 years ago. But it's not one triumph after another. Anyone who's been around for any length of time knows that it doesn't. The failures, the successes, the the you know, the, the, the projects that just haven't worked, and and you know the the pain, sweat, and tears that have gone into so many of the people who who've walked away from Christ in the midst of it. it is, you know, it, it, there's good things happening. God's doing His work, but it's in the midst of weakness. Third implication: we should anticipate. We, we should just have a settled expectation that whatever Christian work we are involved in or will be involved in in the future will be conducted in human weakness. That's not to say that we should go out looking for trouble. We don't try and make things as difficult as possible and do them in the hardest possible way. And we certainly don't stand there crying out, bring it on, God, I want to suffer some more. <laughs> that We're not talking about masochism. Paul wasn't trying to get himself shipwrecked three times. <laughs> He wasn't going, flog me some more. I want to be flogged again. I only got up to four. What do you mean? Bring it on. I want, I want another 39. <laughs> he wasn't out there so he could starve and be thirsty and, but they came as he knew that they would because God works in human weakness. Dedication to the service of the gospel is going to be costly, difficult, tiring. Just got to expect it. But it's worth it. Why? Because it's God's power at work and God does amazing things and lives are saved, right? But you've got to anticipate the, the weakness. Fourth implication. And I think this is an important one for, for us in our church to, to really take to heart. It's okay to be weak. And it's okay not to have everything worked out and and it's okay not to have everything in your life all together and and it's okay that people know that as well it, it's okay not to be particularly talented to, to be able to serve god and, and and to even do great things for him in fact the greatest things are done through the weakest people right god specializes in using the weak and the fragile and sometimes how ludicrously bad efforts to achieve the most wonderful things in his providence. He does it so that the glory doesn't get us, but to him. And so don't let your feelings of inadequacy stop you from having a go. Don't let them stop you from serving. Don't let the feeling of I could never do that or I could never be like so-and-so stop you having trying something out or trying to learn a new skill or serving some new ministry capacity. Right? Don't let it stop you. Right? You may be inadequate, but God is not. And it's God who's going to get his work done through you, through all of us, in our weaknesses. And so fifth and last implication, in everything, all the glory has to go to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, our saviour. Isn't that what Paul does? Verse 30 of 2 Corinthians 11, if I must boast, I'll boast about the things that show my weakness. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, be praised forever. Why, why give God all the praise and the glory? Because he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Give all the glory to Jesus Christ. All glory be to him. Let's pray. Our Father, these are astonishing words. Powerful words that the world would not recognize as powerful. That you work through our weaknesses. It's how you've always done it. So the glory goes to you and not to us, not to your workers, not to your children, but to you, our God and Father. And we thank you for the mighty things you have done through the weakest people in history, Moses and David and Gideon and Jeremiah the prophet, who all begged to be someone else. And yet you insisted and they went in obedience, knowing their own weakness. And look what you did. And you did it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, forgiveness, life through the darkest act of history. A man in all weakness crucified. And yet he is our saviour. He's the one we follow. Help us to follow him, to be like him, to take up our cross and follow daily, to give our lives to your service. Use us in our weakness, not that we might be honoured or praised or remembered, but so that you will be and people will give their lives to you and be growing up in their faith. Please use us with our inadequacies to serve you wholeheartedly to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.